Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Good morning. So ordinarily I would uh, begin by uh, reading the passage that we're going to study and then we'd look at it, but I've been sitting outside and it's freezing cold and so uh, I'm going to shorten the sermon Um, out of love. Uh, uh, But as you know, we do go through the passage pretty much verse by verse, so you will still get the whole whole section. Uh, But please do turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and uh, just keep your Bible open. We're going to look at verses 16 through to the end of the chapter. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 16. So I'm sure you noticed the title for this sermon is Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, I wonder how many of you are familiar with that, that phrase. Maybe it's the first time you've seen it and you're wondering what's going on. Why are we we're in Africa, not in Scandinavia? Uh, what has it got to do with us? Uh, maybe some of you have seen the recent movie. Uh, I think it's called Stockholm, uh, which is actually about the event that uh, was caused this name to, to uh, be formed, the syndrome to be designated. Uh, it happened in Stockholm. These two guys robbed a bank and they took four people hostage. Uh, they ended up being trapped in the bank and they kept these hostages for six days. And then what, uh, what the police found out afterwards is that uh, these four people had grown an attachment for the bank robbers, for their, their captors. Uh, they in fact refused to even testify against them and started fundraising to gather money to pay for lawyers so that they could uh, get these men set free. Uh, To give you an example, even when threatened with physical harm, the hostages still saw compassion in their abductors. After Olsen, one of the the captives, threatened to shoot Safstrom in the leg, To shake up the police, the hostage recounted to the New Yorker, to the newspaper, how kind I thought he was for saying it was just my leg he would shoot. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, obviously, psychologists and therapists were quite fascinated with this, and so they they said it's, they they termed it the Stockholm Syndrome. And uh, the Stockholm Syndrome is what we find in Corinth, okay? Uh, nearly 2,000 years before the phrase or the, t- the title is coined, uh, it's occurring in the city of Corinth, and unfortunately it continues to occur across the world and unfortunately in many churches. Uh, so remember the setting, it's a church that Paul had planted, but these false apostles, these super apostles had crept in and were turning the church against Paul, but as we're going to see now, they were... Uh, not just those who came with false doctrine. Paul doesn't really go in 
into too much detail about their false doctrine, but he does go into detail about their, their character. They were domineering, they were authoritarian, they were abusive, as you will see here. And yet the Corinthians were enamored with them and were quite ready to give them the pulpit and quite ready to turn against Paul, who had labored and was their spiritual father. Uh, and so uh, they come under the spell of these abusive people. So let's look at verse 16. Paul says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. If you were here last week, remember back in verse 1, he says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. And so he's repeating that again. And so he's saying, look, I'm going to behave in a foolish way. But he uses a lot of sarcasm. He's saying, I'm going to behave like these false apostles. Uh, you know, they're always bragging about their accomplishments. Well, let me be foolish like them because, and he says this to them, you seem to be quite ready to bear with fools. And so he's going to behave in a foolish way. And as I said last week, Proverbs 26 verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And so sometimes uh, we have to play the fool to show the other side how stupid they actually are. Okay? Uh, to expose their own foolishness. And so sometimes people use this methodology in apologetics. So you could say, well, okay, let's pretend there is no God. Uh, let's live on your terms. Then where on earth... Does morality come from? Uh, if you say it's a social construct, who says social constructs are right? If you say you can do anything as long as you don't hurt people, what if I enjoy hurting people? Who says hurting people is wrong? Where do you get that from? Uh, and so you just push and push and push and show the foolishness of that thinking. Uh, and so Paul is doing something along those lines. Look at verse 17. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. So Paul isn't here saying, look, what I'm saying now is not inspired. He's just simply saying, I'm going to talk like a non-Christian now. It is unbelievers who boast and who are arrogant and full of themselves. Okay? And that's why he keeps on saying, I'm going to speak like a fool. I'm going to speak like a fool. And as I said just now, the example, when you say, okay, let's there's no God. Of course, as Christians, we know there is a God. But in that setting, then, you're talking as though you're an atheist. And so Paul is doing the same thing here. Yeah, he's saying, I'm going to speak as, as a non-Christian. I'm also going to boast about my accomplishments. Paul hated to do this. Uh, he had to be pushed to even talk about himself. He didn't like to talk about himself. He wanted to talk about Christ. You can see that in all his other epistles. And you can see how in 2 Corinthians, the agony that Paul goes through, that he has to defend himself. It's the most painful thing for him. He would rather die, I think, than have to defend himself. But he does it in a very sophisticated way. And so he's going to, uh, through sarcasm and irony, expose these false apostles. Verse 19, For you gladly bear with fools... Being wise yourselves. Okay. And so, uh, remember the setting in Corinth? 
We looked at it in a lot of detail in the first sermon in the series. Uh, Corinth was this wealthy town, very sophisticated, uh, a lot of immorality, a lot of uh, you know, entrepreneurs, go-getters, dynamic people, people who got things done, people who thought they were very wise. And so Paul here is saying, look, you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. And so, he, of course, he's, he's teasing them. He's being sarcastic. They thought they were so clever. Um, does that sound a little bit like the world in which we live? Does, does everyone think they're really clever? Uh, it seems that, you know, just because you have an opinion doesn't mean you have to tell everyone. Okay? Uh, but somehow people think, I have an opinion and everyone needs to know it. Uh, I, people seem to be authorities on everything suddenly, okay? especially in the day and age in which we live. Uh, Chris sent me this humorous article. It's a parody, so nobody take it seriously, please. It's not real. It's a pretend newspaper article. Hospital to replace doctors with parents who have done their research. <laughs> uh, Sydney, Australia, a large tertiary care centre in Sydney, Australia is pulling out all the stops to try and cut their expenses. As of next month, all doctors and nurses currently on staff will be replaced by parents who have done research on the internet. I can't tell you how happy and relieved I am when a patient tells me they have done some research on the internet, said Head of Neurology, Dr. Eric Shepard. The hospital is excited about how much money this move would save them not to mention the overwhelming support from parents everywhere. This is a great move in my opinion, said Meryl Dory. Most parents know more than doctors anyways, so this is a huge step in the right direction. Okay. It's not true, don't worry. Uh, just getting the idea out there that of course suddenly everyone is an expert on everything. Now it's not that we should naively believe experts, uh, but it's interesting to me that what happens is that people who be, think they're so clever and think they're free and independent thinkers actually become those who start to listen to fools who affirm their prejudices and cultural sins. That's all that ends up happening. You just find someone that will affirm what you already believe or what is already comfortable for you and you really become a sycophant of some celebrity or some politician or some pastor. Uh, celebrity pastors are a big thing. What the Bible teaches is that a little humility goes a long way. Okay. Little humility goes a long way. And so Paul mocks them. He's sarcastic with them. You know, you're very clever. You seem to know it all. Well, then please bear with me because you bear with other fools. Verse 20, for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. They, they bore with it. They were happy to be entrapped by these false apostles, to be made slaves by them, to be devoured by them, to be taken advantage by them, and even to be struck in the face by them. That's Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, these oppressive, domineering, authoritative, manipulative peddlers, pseudo-apostles, had enslaved the Corinthian church, were abusing them, even physically, and yet they happily took it. 
Now, why does it happen? It happens all over the place. It happens in so many pulpits across the world, unfortunately, and many of us have come out of experiences like that. And you might think, well, uh, bullies like that, you know, they'll just capture weak people. That's what happens. You know, they just go after the weak. But many of those churches are full of very strong and well-educated people, aren't they? Clever people. And so why do they, these churches often prosper and thrive? Uh, well, one reason, uh, I listened to a, a, a podcast from a, a person that I quite enjoy, and he was into interviewing a man called Chuck DeGroat, uh, who's the author of When Narcissism Comes to Church. When Narcissism Comes to Church. And he's like, sort of the guru on narcissism in Christian circles. He's done a lot of research, a lot of study. And uh, this is, I'm going to just read from the transcript. Uh, so the, the host asks him, if we could step into that question of why does the believing community again, not to say that it's unique to the believing community, to the church, but what is it in the community of God that seems to be drawn into structures that seem to align itself with the presence of narcissism? What is it within the church that we often open the door to these types of leaders and give them a platform and uh, support them and follow after them and they, they get such a foothold in the, in the church? Um, you, you can see it has been exposed a lot in North America, uh, but it happens in South African pulpits. I've seen big shots, so, I, would, I would say so-called pastors, I don't believe they're real pastors, with Tens of thousands of adherents or members. They have multi-campus churches across South Africa. And I've seen, I've watched footage of how they treat people when the sound doesn't work, how they're shouting, you better sort it out. I'm not talking again. <laughs> this is in the middle of the sermon. And the church is packed. Every week, over and over again. Churches where you see the anger in the person because there's not enough people. It's not a love for souls. It's, you're making me look bad. This place should be full. We need to get more money in. And yet, people flock to these, these abusive false teachers. Why does it happen? So, uh, Chuck DeGroat says this. It feels like there's a kind of contemporary, maybe psychological response to that. Or a kind of theological response, maybe. I mean, when I think about this, remember this is a transcript, so it's not very eloquent, but uh, stay with me. Uh, when you think about this, this is the age-old question of belonging, to be freed from longing. So people do want to belong to something. Adam and Eve in the garden, and a serpent slithers up to them and says, surely God hasn't told you not to eat of that tree. And the grasping for the fruit becomes our first moment, I've got to control this. So what the author is going to go on to show, I'll read just now, is to show it's not simply the fault of abusive leaders. As I said last week, if, if abusive leaders are empowered, it's because there's a community that's empowering them. They also, there's a sin there. They're at fault. I've got to take this into my own hands. That's the idea. I want control. And that's the story from there on out. You think about when Moses went up the mountain, 
The people of God are restless, waiting. They can't wait any longer, and so they form the golden calf. Later on, they demand a king, and they're not satisfied with God as their king. So this is the story over and over and over and over again. I think in a more contemporary sense, I like the work of Gerald Post. He's written books on everyone from terrorists to Bill Clinton to Donald Trump. He's written about the mirror-hungry narcissist, so the one who's obsessed with themselves and full of themselves, and the ideal hungry follower. The ideal hungry follower is sort of like those little fish that attach themselves to larger fish. Have you seen that? Especially on sharks or whales, you get that little, it's called a sucker fish or a mora. It's saying that's what the church becomes like. It's a whole lot of little sucker fishes. Something about their insecurity demands that they feed off of another that they see as secure and powerful. And so they're drawn like moths to a fire. They're drawn to the narcissist as that host. And that's not just an individual. We'll get to the next part now. See what he's saying? We want to feel powerful. We're all, within all of us, there's a little narcissist that needs to be put to death. We, want it, we feel, I, you know, if only people listen to me, I have all the answers. I've got it together. But nobody listens to me. Wait a minute, there's some big shot who's powerful. I want to be part of the winning team. We all have that. How many of you were Barcelona fans until last week? <laughs> Suddenly there's like, shame poor Barcelona. I don't know what's going to happen to them. Uh, We've got no more fans. Everyone's gone to PSG. It's understandable. We want to be on the winning team. And so that's why this cult of celebrity has grown in politics, in the church, because I feel insignificant. But if I can link myself to some powerful voice, someone who seems to have all the answers, someone who, who's domineering, gets it done, has authority, then I can, I can feel powerful. And Corinth was full of that mindset of power, of status. Johannesburg is full of that. Our hearts are full of that. I want to be on the winning team. I want to be on, you know, I want to, I want to quote all these people so I can destroy everyone else and show them how powerful I am, even, nobody, even though nobody knows who I am. They know who this guy is. Uh, and so I'm associated with this guy. Not just individuals. He says there's a kind of collective dynamic. Look, look at us. I've worked with systems that are narcissistic, where there's a collective grandiosity. I worked with a discipleship ministry where it was like we put out the very best discipleship materials in the whole of North America. There's no one that comes close to us. It was a Jesus-following, Jesus-honoring kind of organization saying that we are the best disciples in all the world. Collective grandiosity. A group of people that align themselves around a powerful leader. So there's a really interesting dynamic there. People who follow others in almost a cult-like way because of their own feelings of powerlessness, deficiency, insecurity. I think it speaks to our cultural moment and why so many people who feel disenfranchised in a way, gather around a particularly powerful leader. Isn't that an insightful explanation of what's going on in politics and what's going on in the church at large? And it's crept into the church all the way back here in Corinth and it continues even to this day. And so the idea is making disciples. It's not a cult. It's not that you, your Christianity is, is linked in 
separately, inseparably to the pastor. Remember, we've seen Paul's method, working together with you for your joy, that all of us will think biblically, all of us will have a Christian worldview. And that as long as there's faithful pastors here and one goes, we move, people move, people die, new people come in, it doesn't shake your faith. Because if your faith is grounded in another person, how strong is that faith? If you have your favorite preacher and if they're not here, that's a problem. Paul, First Corinthians, that's a problem. Then it's not Christ that you, that you love. It's this individual, I like this one, this is my favorite. I only listen to this one. So I've said that to you before. Heritage is a wonderful church. We are not the best church in the world. <laughs> We're not the greatest. We do things the best or anything like that. That's an arrogance. And I hear this. I hear this from other churches. You know, the greatest expository church in the world and the greatest this church, the greatest discipling church. We have the most gifted. We have the most of this. Let's never be a part of the thinking, this grandiosity, this cult-like thinking. We seek by God's grace to be the best that we can be. We are sinners saved by grace. We have blind spots. We're continuing to grow. We want to, we want to do everything excellently and well. But Paul, the greatest Christian who ever lived, what did he say? I haven't attained. I haven't arrived. Even here we're going to see when he is boasting, it's, he's boasting in his weakness. Not in how great he is. And so in many ways for me, this chapter and this section is the high point of this whole series. It's to, it's to equip us and disciple us to, to make sure that we, we have faithful leaders, faithful pastors, not just now, but for generations to come. That we're not seduced by charismatic and dynamic leaders and domineering leaders who we think, well, they have authority, so they must be right. But that we can think clearly and sift everything through Scripture. Verse 21, Paul says, To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. See the irony? Paul is like saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry we didn't abuse you. I'm sorry we didn't hit you in the face. I'm sorry we didn't treat you like that. We were too weak for that, you know. But as you know, if you're a Christian, as you know, losing your temper, being abusive, being rude, it's not difficult. That's the natural man. Being lowly and gentle and kind and patient and thoughtful, that's difficult. That's strength. Saying no to sin, dying to self, working with people for their joy, not just saying, you're either with me or you know, you're either on the bus or get out the bus or the bus will ride over you, as one so-called pastor said. Uh, it's not, no, we work together for joy. We are at different places. People have different experiences and backgrounds and all these things and it's walking a road with one another, not condoning sin. Okay, so let me make that clear. Paul's weakness is not, nothing to do with condoning sin. Okay? It's not saying, oh, well, I'm just weak, so sin is okay. That's never the idea here. This weakness is not a license to sin. And so Paul says, no, that he was weak. He was kind to them. He was loving to them, and yet they turned against him. But he comes back, he says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, 
I'm speaking as a fool. So he keeps reminding them, look, this is, I'm speaking as a fool. Uh, this is not how, how a Christian talks. This is, this is how a fool speaks. I also dare to boast of that. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. And so they were boasting about their ethnic pedigree. Where they came from, they came from Israel, as the other apostles did. And they're real Hebrews. They're true Israelites. They're descendants of Abraham. So Paul says, well, so am I. Okay. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? This is where it really gets to the point. Remember, servant of Christ is sort of a messenger, an apostle. Is he a true apostle? He's been attacked as a true apostle. They say he isn't a true apostle. And he says, am I, am I a servant of Christ? Are they servants of Christ? Sorry, I am a better one. Now he gets to the real issue, what he's going to defend, his apostolic ministry. Now he's just said he's a better one. That sounds quite arrogant. Look what he says straight away. I am talking like a madman. Okay, So not just I'm talking like a fool, I'm talking like a madman. And now he's going to defend his, his ministry. With far greater labors. And so what he does now in this famous section where he talks about his sufferings is he turns the false apostles boasting on, on its head. He undermines the Corinthians' obsession with the external, with prestige and comfort and status and luxury. He begins to boast about his sufferings, his difficulties. And he begins by saying that he works harder. Now the word labor here is the, word that is, the Greek word that is used for physical labor. So he says, with far greater labors. So he said, I work physically. I work with my hands. Uh, we've seen already last week how Paul was a tent maker. Remember that? He subsidized his income by working with his hands. He made tents and he, he sold them. He was not afraid of physical labor. And so here he says, he boasts about the fact that he, he has to work hard with his hands. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, and especially the Greek world, the Greek philosophers looked down on physical work. They had slaves for that. You've, you've arrived when you don't have to do any more physical labor. And Paul says, let me tell you how, my, how great I am. I work with my hands a lot. I get stuck in. Remember, he's not just an academic who sits in an office somewhere and writes scholarly articles. He went around planting churches. He worked with his hands. He was visiting people. He was going to different cities to start churches. And so let me just say as an aside, as I say frequently, because there is in South Africa, there is this, this frowning on physical labor. that Everyone wants a white-collar job. And people look down on blue-collar work, and it is ungodly. Okay. God begins in creation. He gets his hands dirty when he makes Adam. Jesus Christ worked with his hands, and it is not shameful to work with one's hands. And so it is wonderful me when I see men and women in the church working with their hands, stacking chairs, doing physical things. If you think, no, that's not my job, I'm too good for that, 
that's sinful. Okay. You say, no, that's somebody else's job, the physical stuff. Even, even those who want to be pastors, okay? It's not to say, oh, no, I'm, I'm just a pastor. I don't do any of the physical work. I never get my hands dirty. That, that's ungodly, okay? Are you willing to work? Paul boasts about the fact that he, he worked, that he got his hands dirty. Shameful in the Corinthian context. They were businessmen, money makers, entrepreneurs. And then he goes on. He says, far more imprisonments. Countless beatings, often near death. Remember, we've seen already with these false apostles how they mocked Paul because of his sufferings. They, they were the, the inventors of sort of the prosperity message. That if you're close to God, nothing will go wrong with you. If you tithe properly, you will be rich. Healthy and wealthy and prosperous and everything will go well with you. And so Paul all the way along has been saying, look how much I suffer. That's actually a sign that I am a true disciple of Jesus Christ, that I am a true apostle. And so here he boasts about his imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. This is an incredible list. I've known of this list for as long as I can remember being a Christian. So from my teenage years, I've read it. But really, going through it slowly, it is horrific. Remember, this is still early on in his ministry when he writes 2 Corinthians. There's still a lot of things to happen in the book of Acts that haven't even yet happened. Already, he's lost count of how many times he's been beaten. Forty lashes less one, he's been whipped. I mean, just one is bad enough. Five times he's received that. Three times beaten with rods. Once he was stoned, they left him for dead. They thought he was dead. We, we read elsewhere. It's just, just try and think through it, okay? The, in sort of 10 years, 15 years, he's experienced all of this. What sort of scars does he have on his body? What sort of pain? You know, we all have those sort of injuries. You know, we got hurt when we were playing sport or we were in a car accident and it affects us for the rest of our lives. He's been beaten over and over and over again, stoned. Who knows what that does to a a human body and the bones broken and the scars. But see what he's boasting in? His weakness, his sufferings, his work. Three times I was shipwrecked. What a... This is even before the shipwrecking that we read of in Acts. Okay, so at least four times he's shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea. I mean, if I read this, I would be like, I'm not traveling with Paul. <laughs> <laughs> you know that um, the, the, if you get bitten by a shark, it's very rare. You know that they say that it's like, you know. Can basically die of anything else than a shark attack. It's so rare. You know, there's a guy who's been attacked twice by sharks. Like, that's unlucky. Okay, poor guy. Paul shipwrecked four times in it, at least in his life. 
How is that to say, I am the apostle of Jesus Christ chosen by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles? You'd say, you're doing something wrong because everything's going wrong in your life. That creeps into our thinking, doesn't it? We say, well, we don't hold to prosperity, but we still think like that often. It's going badly for that person. I wonder what they did wrong. That person's sick. Probably because they didn't shake my hand. That's probably why. Okay. Well, now they can't shake hand. They didn't give me a... <laughs> we think like that. And here Paul is saying, this is all my suffering. I was shipwrecked on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. That's the Jews. Danger from Gentiles. See, you're just in trouble with everyone. That's how you know you're right. <laughs> if, you're just, if you're just on one side and only the other side is against you, then you're wrong. If you're just on the other side and only the other, that side is against you, you're also probably wrong. Okay? Paul was in trouble with legalistic people and antinomian people, people who were against the law. Got flack from both sides. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Uh, Paul, you know, can say at the end of his life, all have forsaken me. It's just, it's just, he is so much like the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the Lord Jesus, when he needed people the most, they left him at the end of his life. For his crucifixion alone. Paul the same. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Is this the triumphalistic Christianity? You know, we, we're the king's kids, we're the head and not the tail. You know, all of those statements, Paul is saying, like, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst. He often went without food, exposed to the elements. And I just want to say this. I, people try and defend the prosperity message. You know that? They'll say, well, Abraham was rich or <laughs> things like that. There's a context to all of those things. But explain to me how you can read this passage regarding one of the probably the greatest Christian who has ever lived and say the prosperity message is the correct way. It is an impossibility. You are switching your mind off. You are following your lusts because you want to be rich. You want to be comfortable. You want to be the boss. You want everything to go well with you. And you're sanctifying it with pseudo-Christianity. Here it is crystal clear. The man who had the greatest faith outside of Christ Trusted God, obeyed Him implicitly. This was His life. This is how He suffered. It makes a mockery of that heresy. And all of this points us to who? To a, a suffering Savior. He lived a cruciform life, Paul. A cross-shaped life. Like the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in weakness. Not domineering. Even though he was Lord. Remember what he says? And I'm Lord. It's right you call me Lord. And yet he washes their feet. Humbles himself. 
meek and lowly, suffering, rejected, forsaken, beaten, spat upon, humiliated. And if we're Christians, that's the path we have to follow. Maybe not ever to the degree of Paul, maybe not to to an actual crucifixion, but the attitude must be the same of it's in weakness. See what he'll say just now. Verse 28, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Stressing about all the churches he had planted. He wasn't just a pastor of one church, but he had planted many churches. And we've already seen in Second Corinthians the anxiety, the, the stress. You see, this is a good stress. We should have... We should be anxious for one another in, when we see our brother and sister not living properly or being in a wrong relationship or we can see they're taking strain or they're in difficulties, severe trials. It should be. It should keep you awake at night. It should cause you to pray a little bit longer. It's right. This is good. Verse 29, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? See, he's a father. He's a spiritual father. When he sees his children being hurt and being made to fall by false teachers, becomes angry. Just some application here. You see, Paul is involved in, the, in, the, in, these, in his churches and in the lives of the people and what's going on. And so when he, sees, when he sees the issues, when he sees the weaknesses and the, the difficulties and, and uh, people trying to hurt them, it hurts him. Maybe, maybe you don't have that because you're not being involved in the lives of people. You're not building relationships. You're not drawing close to people and walking a road with them and seeing what's happening. Because when you do, then you'll start to to feel those same experiences. And it's not nice, okay? It's not, it, none of us want extra burdens. We want to be free from burdens. I mean, that's the, that's the dream. Okay? We, want to, we don't want burdens. But that's not the way of Christ. It's to bear one another's burdens. It's to take burdens that are not even ours upon ourselves. That's love. It's the way of Christ. Verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And so he says, I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast. And you're expecting, okay, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Yeah, I'm, I am, I'm also a Hebrew, I'm also an Israelite. Okay, okay what's he going to, what's he, he's going to talk about some amazing things. Uh, when we do get to chapter 12, he's going to say, you know, I was taken up into the third heaven. I had this amazing spiritual experience, but I can't talk about it. Okay, so you had an amazing spiritual experience that has actually no relevance to reality. So even when he boasts about his spiritual experiences, it has, makes no difference to his preaching. He says, I can't even talk about it. So he basically says, my spiritual experience doesn't mean that much. The things that everyone prizes, you know, all these books, bestsellers, you know, I went to hell, I went to heaven, I went to that. <laughs> okay. It, it, Paul says, I, I really did. 
But there's nothing fruitful for me to tell you. I'm not even... It didn't change. It, it added nothing to his theology. And so when he says, okay, I'm going to tell you what I'm really going to boast about. Well, you know what? I work really hard with my hands. I've been in prison a lot. I've been beaten many times. He boasts in his weakness. Because when he is weak, then he is strong. And all of us know that, who belong to the Lord, that it's often in those moments of weakness that we, we draw closest to the Lord and know him best. Martin, the commentator, says this, having taken up his assumed position of foolishly boasting, Paul goes on to give a record of his past life of service for Christ's sake in the Gospels. The true tests of apostleship, he avers, are not in loud claims and unsupported pretensions. The acid test is found in the appellant's record of suffering, service, and sympathy with others for their good. I thought that was a great summation. Suffering, service, and sympathy for, for others. That's what you want to see in, in leaders. And then he ends, he says this, verse 31, the, good, sorry, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. That's the language of an oath. He says, I, I promise, I swear, this is the truth. And then, verse 32 and 33, very strange, at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. If you go home and you just read this passage, I hope you'll see that it's quite odd. So, you know, he, he says, these are my sufferings. God knows I'm not lying. And then he says, yeah, when I was in Damascus, the king was trying to, trying to find me and I escaped through the wall in a basket. Okay, you know, where did that come from? What's going on here? Uh, well, again, if you're familiar with the Bible story, you'll know that Paul is converted on his way to Damascus. Remember that? Um, he's on his way there and the Lord meets him, which he's an apostle because he saw the resurrected Christ. And he's blinded and he goes to Damascus and then he's healed. Uh, and then he has to escape in this way. But now what is Paul doing? Paul is saying, remember he's boasting in his weakness. And he ends off with a story to say, I want to show you how weak I actually am. When, when the Lord converted me in Damascus, the authorities tried to, tried to get me. And if he's a great, powerful man of God, what would he have done? He would have resisted or he would have called down fire from heaven. And he said, you know how I, how I got out of that? He was the first basket case. Okay. <laughs> like like a, someone running away. Just, just guys, quickly, let's hide him. Let's put him in a basket and drop him down the wall. Let's get, let's get him out of here. It reminded me of the stories in the Gospels. There's quite a few places where they try to kill Jesus. They try to throw him off a cliff or they try to stone him. And you know, if you... If you haven't read the Gospels before, and maybe you have a certain worldview, certain presuppositions, maybe all you've ever heard is sort of triumphalistic Christianity, you would be like the disciples. What did the disciples always want Jesus to do? 
call down fire from heaven. And you think these people want to stone Jesus. They want to throw him off a cliff. And you think, I wonder what he's going to do. This is going to be good. This is, this is, you don't mess with Jesus. Uh, and, and like some powerful, you know, just fire from heaven. The earth swallows them. You know what the Bible says? But he escaped them. Like what? He escaped them? He got away? Like, that sounds weak to me. You see, that's what Paul is saying here. I'm going to boast in my weakness. So weak that when people try to kill me, I run away. Okay? Live to fight another day. Go and preach the gospel elsewhere. Not that Paul's a coward or anything or against suffering. We've seen that. But that's not the idea. He's not called to be cowards. But it's weakness. Our, the, the, the Christian's display of power is not in the physical. It's not in oppressing people. That's why it's never been right for Christianity to spread by the sword. It's easy to become enamored with with the government and Christianity together because then we have power and authority and we're, we're the top. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's always through weakness. That's the, that's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the cross because it doesn't function the way the world works. It inverts it. It undermines it. That's why Paul can say the cross is foolishness. To those who are perishing. A weak, broken, bloody, humiliated, naked man on a cross? You want to tell me that's God in the flesh? You want to tell me that's that's the God who's going to judge me? Yes, that's the gospel. If you can't accept that, if you can't humble yourself to receive it, there is no good news for you. And you can carry on following abusive leaders and being caught up with them in your own narcissism. But if you're willing to humble yourself, say, yes, I see it. By the God's grace, the Spirit will show you, yes, I see the wisdom of this, that it's in weakness. That's the power, the power of the gospel. It's in the cross. It's in Christ coming in weakness. And you know, in that weakness, in that moment, it was the greatest victory ever. Where he conquered our most serious enemies, sin and death. And so my challenge to all of us is, if you're not a Christian, humble yourself. Come to the cross. The Lord won't turn you away. If you're a Christian, don't don't become discouraged. It's natural. All of us want to be powerful. We want to have our say and be seen and heard and all of these things. Don't give up being that weak, not sinfully weak, not intellectually weak. That weak, gentle, kind, patient Christian. And that's the way the gospel spread in the early church. They were not the top, they were underneath. And yet they loved even their enemies And the church grew and grew and grew and grew. And we hear the same thing in China, don't we? That's how it works. May God help us. Amen. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for, we thank you for your Apostle Paul and again how he shows us you, Lord Jesus. And, uh, just a reminder that uh, you are a glorious Savior. We are so grateful you did not come in wrath and fury and judgment and power because then all of us would be in hell. That's what we deserve because of our sin. But thank you that you came in weakness and humility and gentleness and suffering. And you lay down your life for your sheep and you call us to do the same. And there are so many temptations, uh, not just in our own hearts to not do that, but also in the world. And we want to be heard, we want to be seen, we want to be something. So we pray that you would, you would forgive us, but that you would help us to truly die to self, and that the only, our only ultimate leader would be you, Lord Jesus, and that we would imitate you in every sphere of life. And if there are any who have never bent the knee to you, Lord, may they, by your Spirit, see that the cross is not foolishness, but the wisdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen.